Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, we're grateful that you made us. And we're grateful that you tell us the truth about our condition before you as your creatures who have gone astray and each of us gone to to his own way and not yours. We thank you that you're a good physician who doesn't lie to your patients about how bad it really is so we feel better about ourselves. We thank you that you tell us the truth so that we get to the end of ourselves and run to you. Help us now, Lord. We need your help. We bring our sin into this meeting, to this sermon, and we are masters at reframing, excusing, rationalizing, blaming. So would you break through all of those tendencies we have and help us get to reality? Not of our own making, but reality. From your perspective, so that we can get to the remedy that is your doing in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. actually begin at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25 of Genesis 2. Genesis two twenty-five, And the man and his wife were both naked And we're not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, there it is. There's our problem. Um, Have you noticed there's a problem? Uh, If not, you are terribly ignorant or self-deceived or distracted, all of which very well may be the case. We've got a massive problem. And if you spend a lot of time listening to motivational speakers, you may not realize that. And these days, more and more preachers are sounding more and more like mere motivational speakers. But the fact is, we've got a serious sin problem, and of all the things we believe as Christians, of all the things the Bible teaches, I don't think there's anything more obvious than that we've got a massive sin problem in the world, a horrible, as Martin Luther said, inward curvature of the self, where we're at war with ourselves, with God, with everyone else by nature. And the easy thing is to be at war. What takes something to change is to be at peace with God and with other people. We've got a serious problem, and it seems like human history goes through these cycles of unbridled optimism. You know, the uh, movements that we see even today show a great naivete about the reality of the depravity of humanity. Man is basically good. All we need is a little more time. All we need is some more education. All we need is better parenting. All we need is government programs to save us. And everything will be fine. If we could just get rid of greed, if we could just get rid of racism, if we could just get rid of treating people with such hatred and disdain, then everything would be okay. So let's do that. I read this week about a woman named Beatrice Webb who was one of the architects of the modern British 
social welfare system, and she was one of the founders, along with her husband, of the London School of Economics. She was a socialist and an activist and a British leader, and in 1925, she was starting to be disillusioned, and she went back and read one of her diary entries from 1890, and here, 35 years later, she read one of her entries that said this. I have staked everything on the goodness of human nature. And then 35 years later, she says this. Now I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? It took her 35 years, and in 1925, she came to that realization. She hadn't seen anything yet. Just a few years later, Adolf Hitler arrives on the scene and six million are butchered in a genocide. Social progress, solutions with just look within, you'll find the answers. How's that working out for you? It doesn't seem to be working at all. And in spite of the fact that it's the easiest thing I think Christians believe to prove that we've got a massive sin problem, it seems to be the hardest one for us to accept. We, I, I can see throughout my life this tendency to, to just change the narrative that makes me look so bad. And God loves us too much to let us stay with that kind of faulty impression. And so he tells us the truth. And in this passage, we get the truth about ourselves because we have followed in this legacy that Adam and Eve left for us, every one of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. We have not chosen God. Not one of us, by nature, boots up Godward. We boot up very selfward. That's where all the effort needs to go. If, if you've raised children, you know that, right? The effort needs to go toward love and unselfishness. It's not natural to be that way. Let me just read you the main point of this passage that uh, one commentator, Alan Ross, describes, I think, very well. He says, the point of this passage is, is that a thorough knowledge of the word of God A thorough knowledge of the word of God and unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want victory over the evil in this world, over my own flesh that will lead me into evil. I want victory over spiritual forces of darkness. And if we are to find those, it's through trusting God by trusting his word. 
That's the main point here. We were created for a wonderful relationship with God. That's the main reason we were created, for relationship with him, for intimacy with him, this 225 reality of being naked and unashamed before one another and before God with nothing to hide. In freedom as those created to be in fellowship with our creator and with the other creatures he's made without all the confusion and distortion and perversion and hatred that dominates our world. Although this is so obvious, it's so hard for us to accept. We will do anything before we accept this truth. And I pray that God already is breaking through and you are coming to greater and greater depths that we all are understanding better the depth of our sin. This morning, I pray we will learn to have deeper sorrow for sin because we gather here like this this morning. True sorrow for sin, not bummed because we got caught, but true sorrow for sin that recognizes that all sin is offense against a holy God. And that's how we've got to define this. This is all about our relationship with God. This is not about the horizontal effects of your sin. This is about the vertical reality of a shattered relationship with our creator because we have decided to go our own way. We were created for him and we go our own way. We were created to know and trust God and therefore know and trust his word. That's why when the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, it then says in Deuteronomy 6, and these words I command you today and you shall take them to heart. And teach them to your children and, and give them, put them on the doorposts. And then when you rise and when you lie down, take God's words to heart and obey them. Loving God and obeying God go hand in hand. Jesus, after all, said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And the great commission to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also includes and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Love and obedience go hand in hand because obedience shows you trust the God you love. You really see him as God. And the fact is, we need him to tell us what's true. Even before Adam and Eve have sinned, they realize that we need to take God at his word. We are limited. God is unlimited. He knows everything. We know very little. He is the all-wise, only wise God, and we need him if we are ever going to be wise. And the second we go astray from him and think we can take matters of good and evil and knowledge of truth into our own hands, we will always invariably go astray. Right? Hebrews 5 says, that, that we need to have our senses of discernment trained to discern good and evil. Our senses of discernment are trained by God's word. Apart from it, gone on our own, we will not get to truth and falsity and a clarity about what, which is which. We will actually go where we invariably go, not only not even be able to tell the difference between good and evil, we go where humans always go, calling evil good and good evil. That's where we are in such blatant ways. What is good from God's perspective is called evil. And what is evil from God's perspective is called good. And if you dare go against the party line of our culture in these things, you will be dismissed as an intolerant, backward idiot. But when God clearly speaks, we trust his word and we bank on his word because he's God and he knows best. 
Please realize one more point before we dive into and and walk through our passage. The spiritual realm is where this battle primarily takes place. We have this serpent. Satan uses this creature of a serpent to bring about this temptation that leads his his, uh, victims astray from their creator. And this is primarily a spiritual reality. Oh, it takes place in physical reality, but please realize if we are going to take seriously the battle of living for God, it is fundamentally a spiritual battle and fundamentally fought with spiritual weapons of warfare like prayer and the word of God and the gospel of life. Our battle's not against principality, our battle's not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities and powers in high places. And Satan represents that battle here as he comes. And he comes, we're told, crafty in verse 1 of chapter 3. Shrewd, wily, understanding how things work. And based on his goals, doing it in a really brilliant way. Satan's not stupid. Now, to be shrewd or crafty doesn't have to be a bad thing. We're actually commanded to be shrewd, aren't we? To understand how the world works, to be nobody's sucker, to not be naive, right? To realize that, that the world is away and people are away and we're not taken advantage of in some blissful naivete about everybody being good. We understand that the world is a dark and difficult and harsh place. And we move into it with our eyes wide open. But if our goals are evil like Satan's are, shrewdness can be a horrible thing because of its effectiveness in producing evil. And he's shrewd, he comes. And I want us to think about Satan's path toward destruction that he leads us down. He doesn't just leave Adam and Eve, lead Adam and Eve down this path. He leads every one of us. We have all walked this journey with him. We all are sinful. We all have a dark heart that we are born with, that we need to come to grips with. And we go down the very same path Adam and Eve went down. How does he start? How does Satan lead Adam and Eve down this path? The first thing he does is doubt God's word. He comes and he says, did God really say that? I don't think he's primarily questioning whether or not God literally said it. I think there's a mocking, sneering, really? Really? Seriously? Come on. Going on here. There's an atmosphere. It's not an argument at all he's giving Adam and Eve. It's an attitude, which is actually, I think, what we need to come to grips with the most. We fear an attitude sometimes way more than an argument. We want people to think we're cool. And up with the times and on the right side of history and, and uh, respectable and smart. And so when someone sneers, it can be devastating to us. Far more so than a well-reasoned argument. Really? Really? Did, did he really say you can't have, eat of any tree of the garden? Come on. With an eye roll. That, that, that can be devastating to us. And that's what he's doing here. I think he's creating an atmosphere, an atmosphere that doubts God's word. 
as anything you should pay any attention to. Really? That's what he's saying, with a, with a mock, with a sneer. And it's, it's something we are so easily sucked into. We hate being thought of in a negative way. Tim Keller puts it this way, the fall of the human race starts not with an action, but with an attitude of the heart. Not with an act, but with a sneer. The serpent is denying what God said and in the process mocking what God has said. The power of the sneer. Do you really believe that? Please, please it, don't be intimidated by that. Don't be intimidated by an attitude somebody throws at you. We just need to get really good at having people throw shade at us. We really do. It, we, we've just got to get used to it. It's just part of the deal. We've got to be tough people. We've got to have thick skins. And if somebody's just appalled that we think something or do something or don't do something, that's okay. Right? We're not in junior high anymore, are we? Most of us, maybe some of you are now. I don't actually see any junior high kids. Next service, I'll have to address them more directly. But, but we don't walk around just so desperately wanting to be liked, do we? Yeah, we do. We're actually obsessed with our opinion polls that, that, that people think about Christians, and, and we've got to get over that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and your primary attitude toward the Christian faith is, seriously, aren't we past that? I want to encourage you to get a better argument than that. I really do, and I would love to have that argument with you in love and give you a hug when we're done. And I'm sure you'll make some good points that'll make me ponder, but, but please... Don't be afraid of an atmosphere, an attitude that can be created with a sneer. That's where Satan starts the descent into destruction, with a sneer. And so he denies God's word that way. And then what does he do next? He distorts God's word. He actually turns God into a legalistic killjoy. The first lie we were ever told about Satan is uh, about God by Satan is that God's stingy. God's a miser. God isn't really uh, good and doesn't have your best interest in mind. Oh, so you can't eat of any trees in the garden. He never said that. Let's look and see what he did say. So we, we have God's word in clarity. Just go one page over, right? In verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat one tree among all the incredible offerings. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Those are God's word. And here comes Satan and he says, um, you can't eat any of the trees of the garden, huh? And Eve actually clears up the problem almost. And she says, well, no, actually, we can eat of all the trees of the garden except one, right? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which he didn't say. So she, she corrects Satan, but takes the bait and starts to exaggerate God's commands, makes them more restrictive than they really are. God is incredibly generous 
overflowingly, lavishly generous, and he's being portrayed as a legalistic killjoy. The fact is, he made this awesome creation we've been seeing for weeks now for his glory and for our pleasure and joy, and now he's being turned into a bad guy for limiting anything at all. And that's what we do. We make God's command seem so extreme and so unreasonable. I read not long ago that like 70% of college students cheat And by far, the number one reason they do is they think the assignments are unreasonable. So they're justified in cheating just to make things just. (laughs) The ways we think are just astounding. The ways we distort things. I need to make the scales even here. And, And we will go to great lengths to make our actions that are disobedience justified somehow. And so we doubt God's word we then distort God's word and then flat out deny it. You will not surely die, verse 4. He just lied to you. That is not what will happen. So he, he doubts it, he distorts it, and now he just flat out denies it. You won't die. Um, you better take matters into your own hands. You see, uh, then he moves to the, the fourth thing, he defames God. So the doubt leads to distortion, leads to denial, and now we've got defamation. We've got defaming God. You will not surely die. So now here comes the argument. Here comes, after the attitude, he goes after the argument. Say, no, you won't die. Let me tell you what's really going on here. Let me help you understand the the real situation here. You see, you won't die. What God's up to is he doesn't like the idea that you'll be like him, which is what you really need. And so you better take matters into your own hands. Don't trust his goodness. Don't trust his wisdom. Don't trust his promises. No, you go fend for yourself. You go take care of yourself because he's not trustworthy. He defames God's character, and doubting God's word always leads to defying God and defaming God. Defamation of character. Defamation is defined this way. Any intentional false communication, either written or spoken, that harms a person's reputation, decreases the respect, regard, or confidence in which a person is held, or induces disparaging, hostile, or disagreeable opinions or feelings against a person. That's what's going on here. This is defamation of character. God is being defamed by Satan and now by his people. You know, vast majority of the people in our society believe God exists. That's true of human history across the board. The question is, not do you think God exists this morning, but do you think this God who exists is good? Can be trusted, especially when this world is filled with evil. But isn't it good to know that in this passage we find an explanation for all the evil? There are all these different ways of trying to explain it away, yin and yang, you know, it's just the circle of life, it's just the way it is, it's all these pithy expressions to try to explain away the horrible reality of the darkness and sin in this world, and they never really satisfy, they never really solve the problem, and so we follow the way of Eve and Adam, we take matters into our own hands, and whether you do it through nice religion thinking you can somehow solve the problem by being really religious or really moral, or whether you do it by saying, I'm just going to live however I want and not answer to anybody and live really an immoral life. Either one of those solutions is still taking matters into your own hands. 
And usually our lives are a combination of those, trying to do our own saving work on ourselves or just saying, forget about it, I'm going to do whatever I want. Those are the routes we typically take. And every time we obey God, we say, I trust you, God. Every time we disobey, we say, I don't trust you, and I think I need to take matters into my own hands. And please realize, the point isn't actually what kind of fruit was it, or what was it about the fruit, or was it about the tree. The details of the rebellion aren't the important thing. What's important is the heart behind the rebellion. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. Every time we sin, we are screaming out to God in the world, I know better than my creator. I know better than I know he made me, but I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And as we read through the Bible, this is the pattern in human history. As we look at human history, it is the pattern of human history. One after another, we take matters into our own hands and fend for ourselves, and it leads to death and destruction. Even anxiousness or greed, anything sinful we do, We're saying, I don't trust the God who's in charge of history. I don't think he's going to get it right in history or in my life. So we're racked with anxiety or rebellion or whatever, however it shows up. And the bottom line is, who's in charge? Who calls the shots? Us or our creator? And Eve takes the bait. Verse 6. She sees it's good and delightful and desirable and will lead to a kind of wisdom. And it does. It leads to an understanding she didn't have before, and it's an understanding of her own autonomy that she has created in her mind, that she's independent of God somehow. And she took, and she ate, and she gave. And do you know, the fruit was beautiful. The fruit was desirable. God made it that way, not to trap her, but because everything he does is good and beautiful and true. So of course it's attractive. And this is the difficult part of sin for us. Everything we are involved with in sin has at its core something good and beautiful God has made. But when we take it into our own hands, independent of God, it always ends up rotting and becoming something very ugly and very destructive, and no longer beautiful. Whether that's sex, or food, or anything he's given us. Oh, it's beautiful. Proverbs 5 says, the the lips of the adulterous woman drips honey. Oh, there's an attraction that God's actually made, and a desire that he's actually put in us. But in the end, if you follow sexual immorality, we're told her steps lead to death. We so often on a daily basis think, no, I don't think so. I think I know better than my creator. And I'm going to leave his design and his ways. And it kills us. And so, here we are. Overtaken by shame. 
aware now of our vulnerability outside of God and his ways, our, our nakedness before him and other people. And we spend the rest of our lives, if God doesn't do something, just manipulating every situation, every relationship, trying to cover ourselves in our own pitiful loincloths that we make that never do the job. We'll see next week the beautiful promise God gives, this incredible grace right after the confrontation. But that's how we spend our lives, don't we? Hiders, hiding from God, hiding from each other, as if God's fooled and if actually most people are fooled. But let's not spend our lives as hiders. Let's go to the solution that our passage, even before next week's passage, provides for us. God takes the initiative. Look at verses 8 through 11. He meets them right where they are. He's walking in the cool of the day, the beautiful time of day as the the evening breeze picks up. That's one of my favorite things about living in Southern California. Even if it's a hot day, we almost always get a beautiful breeze coming in from the ocean in the evening when the sun starts to go down. And it's this time of day in in this image of fellowship with his creation in the garden and he walks toward them knowing they've sinned and initiating the rescue process now he walks toward them he comes to them and he asks them questions not because he doesn't know the answers but because he gets right down in their level and he says where are you adam eve led the way into sin but adam is the one he confronts he stays with the order of creation here he holds adam accountable first (laughs) And Adam passes the buck. First to Eve and then to God. The woman you gave me is the one who's at fault here. Eve does the same thing. The serpent, that he's the blame. Everybody's blaming everybody else and we're so good at this, aren't we? And if there's anything we need today and to this morning is an ability to own our sin. Oh, not figure out more easy ways to talk about it. Uh, to, to truly own it. Oh, yes, being wounded is part of our sin problem. Being hurt and victimized is part of life in a fallen world. But those are the effects of sin. The real problem is rebellious hearts we all have. It's easy for me to talk about how wounded I am. It's harder for me to talk about how rebellious I am. And that's where the problem starts, shaking my fist in God's face. I've got to come to grips. You've got to come to grips with that as the heart of sin. And we need to own it. We have very few examples of people owning their sin these days with so-called confessions like, I'm sorry if anyone was offended. That's not owning anything. Own it. Let's name our sin. Let's repent of our sin and find great freedom. Let's do it before God and one another as James commands us to do and find true freedom. True freedom. Where we can have a nakedness and and an unashamed reality before God. It's what David does in his repentance of of the sins of adultery and murder when he says in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before you. Against you only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that's repentance. That's confession. And God saves them and he's the one who had to do it because the wages of sin is death. 
What will overcome this sin and this injustice and this disobedience? Only God can do that, and he does it through Christ. God had to do it. He took the initiative and came to them in the garden, and he came to us later. uh, Thousands of years later, he comes and he dies after sending his son to take our place. And the one man, Adam, now is replaced by the one man, Jesus. That's what it says in Romans 5, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And he does it not just for die- by dying for us, but by overcoming temptation. In the same kind of way Adam and Eve didn't overcome it, Jesus does. The first thing he does when he starts his public ministry after his baptism is be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And Satan tempts him to take matters into his own hands, have a kingdom of his own making without a cross. And Jesus just keeps saying, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus trusted and obeyed because we didn't. That's the good news this morning. That's how he overcame for us. That's how he becomes the new Adam, taking the place of sinful Adam and all of us in this. And this is the awesome thing about this. We went wrong when we took the place of God. And we are made right when he takes the place of sinful man on a cross. Oh, they took of that tree that God told them not to. And to solve the problem, God the Son went and died on a tree so we could be saved. We put ourselves in the place of God and he put himself in our place. Declared sinful. Declared accursed so that we could be freed again. That's what this table's about. We're thinking about this morning. And and we won't get to this table the way we need to unless we have true sorrow for sin and true repentance for it so we can find true freedom at the table before Christ at the foot of the cross. He overcomes in our place. Jesus trusted God and obeyed him because we didn't. And his battle, like Adam and Eve, as we see in this chapter, also involved toil and sweat and conflict and thorns and a tree and death and dust. And Jesus wins it all. He takes our shame, literally took our nakedness on the cross, our sin, our punishment, so we could be clothed in his righteousness and sing the words of this great old hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrays, with joy shall I lift up my head. Psalm 112 said this, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who admits his sin. Blessed is the one who trusts the Lord, who alone forgives My favorite song my kids sing in the car with the kids' music they sing has that verse quoted, and then it says, Jesus died, so I don't have to hide anymore. He was naked and punished in my place so that I don't have to hide anymore from God or from you. Neither do you if you trust Jesus. That's what this table's about, reminding ourselves what God did. He takes the initiative. He moves toward us. And this bread is a symbol of his body given for us. This juice is a symbol of his blood shed for us. That's what we remember now. And that's all we needed for God to do. 
to correct this horrible wrong. This is where we start over again. And our lives are free now. Naked and unashamed before our creator. And able to live and walking in the light and integrity before one another. Oh, I long for this freedom for myself and every one of us here this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus, this table's not for you. This is the one of the very few times we say you're not welcome. But please, trust Jesus right now. Turn from your sins. Say, I trust you and not myself for my forgiveness and my standing before God. And you can come and take this table. You can partake of these elements. You can even come, if you haven't done that, and ask for prayer. And you're on that journey. I would love to talk to you. Any of the ushers or, or leaders of our church would love to talk to you about this. So as, as the servers come forward, they will, they will offer the bread and the cup. Just take some bread and put it in the juice. And, and then as the Lord leads, maybe back at your seat or right there, take of these elements. If you have a child with you, the servers would be happy to, uh, to um, pray for that child if they're not of age yet where you think this is good. But this is how we do this. Priests offering this symbol of the great high priest who died so that we could be forgiven. Let me pray. Lord, help us. We need help. Thank you that you provide the help, provided the help in Jesus. That you've done everything we needed you to. In Jesus, the son who became one of us and walked our dirty streets and felt the burden of living in this fallen world and took on our sin so that we could be free and unashamed before you, no longer guilty, because Jesus did it for us. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.